Hello there, I'm Christopher Lee and this is SITREP, SITREP, your defence and foreign affairs magazine from BFBS Review. Now in the next 60 minutes, how to get an RAF staff job, make a cock up. Why not give a couple of billion to MI5 instead of spending it in Afghanistan? Is it dither or does Obama have a cunning plan? And why do big powers have such small minds? And why was Morrissey headline news on the day Al-Qaeda killed 140. Well, here in the studio, Royal Marine Major General and Military Historian Julian Thompson, former Kremlin troubleshooter Alexander Nekrasov, and the Director of the Military Sciences Programme at the RUSI, Michael Kodner. Uh, more than 100 killed in Peshawar yesterday, as yet another Taliban bomber went about the business of carnage. Michael, it happened as United States Secretary of State Hillary Clinton um, began her visit to Pakistan. She's three days in she, day two at the moment in Peshawar. Um, It's welcome to Pakistan, isn't it, Mrs. Clinton? Realism. Absolutely, yes, and um, probably not unrelated to instance. Do you think, though, that she understands that? I mean, is it, is it the sort of thing that will send somebody like Mrs. Clinton home and saying, you know, this is, this is a bit different, we've got to have a different plan about Pakistan? Um, that's a difficult question to answer, but uh, I think with her experience so far, this will not be a, a huge surprise to her, but it will certainly make her take the issues very seriously when she does go home. Yeah. Alexander? I personally think that there's total confusion in Washington as regards the policy in Pakistan. In Pakistan. And I think that they've made a crucial mistake of dragging Pakistan into a, basically what we are seeing now as a civil war. And uh, I don't think that, uh, that Hillary Clinton actually paid too much attention to that as regards changing the policy. But I think that the confusion is definitely there. And I think that the situation will deteriorate. Do you think, I mean, Julian Thompson, this idea that some people in some Pakistanis, you hear them on BBC World Service, etc., saying that the United States is part of the problem and not just for them to deal with, or uh, and it's not just the military being obsessed with Kashmir? No, I think, I think they're, they're right to perceive it as a problem, the U.S. as a problem, because after all, the U.S. was putting pressure on Musharraf to get on and sort out the Northwest Frontier Province. Uh, there was a lot of finger-poking, get on with it, and, and publicised in the papers. And so the, public, the public will say, it's those guys over there who are dabbling over here, and that's part and of the problem. that was three years ago. But, having said that, I think that, in, to a sense, the Americans have got to dabble there. So... Um, they're in a cleft stick. They're being blamed for it, but if they suddenly said, well, hey, we're not going to supply you with arms, we're not going to supply you with funds, they, they would also attract a lot of criticism too. Yeah. See, Michael, I was, I was reading um, the Heritage Foundation in America. I was reading their report on the links between Britain and Pakistan. And they argued, and this quote here is, Pakistan is central to terrorist plots in Britain. Uh, that's pretty obvious, isn't it? It has been for some time. Well, certainly to the United Kingdom, it's obvious. It's probably um, an issue that needs to be given a higher profile in the United States. Uh, and um, our cultural affinity with Pakistan um, is um, is um, very central to our, our uh, own problems over terrorism in a way that you could argue, and I certainly would, that Afghanistan is not. See, the two, of course, are related. Now, yeah. if you say that in the way that Afghanistan is not, I mean, we're not, you're not saying that Afghanistan is not 
you're mm-hmm. saying in a way you know, Afghanistan is not. But it does strike me that, um, I mean, I listened to um, the CGS, for example, who says, and, and the government says, the Prime Minister said it, the Defence Secretary has said it, um, that the front line of Britain's, the terrorism problem in Britain's streets is in fact in Afghanistan. It's not, is it? It's in Pakistan. That's certainly the front line, but that language itself is loaded. If we're looking for the um, purposes of the United Kingdom engagement of Afghanistan, I would say that uh, the terrorist threat to the United Kingdom is, as it were, the tripwire, makes it different from, say, Vietnam. I certainly wouldn't say that's the reason why we are committed to Afghanistan to the extent that we are. That relates to our relationship with the United States, our moral commitment because of removal of regime in the first place, our reputation, the continuity of purpose that we need to display to our own public as well as to the rest of the world. These are all the issues which um, support why we are there now, and um, those are the arguments in favour of sticking it out. I agree with what Michael's saying totally. Um, The plots are not being made in Afghanistan, to put it in simplistic language. Uh, and and I, going on from what Michael said, I, I believe if we withdraw from Afghanistan, the danger is you then put further pressure on Pakistan, which is, the, if you like, the link or the more direct link to terrorism in this country than Afghanistan is. Mm. Uh, but there was peace between the, the Pakistani government and the Taliban, the Pakistani Taliban. There was a sort of an understanding, you don't touch us, we don't touch you. And so now to say that, you know, uh, the Americans have pushed uh, what they did is they said this is our, our uh, aid but this aid is specifically tied to whether you'll deal with the Taliban on your territory. Basically that's provoking the government to move in because there's no other way it, can, it cannot actually afford not to have this aid. So the Americans just pushed them in. It's interesting isn't it that yesterday the uh, Prime Minister, Mr Brown was saying, uh, talking about the uh, an extra billion being paid out of, one billion, not million billion out of the treasury for the war in Afghanistan, uh, there are people down on Millbank at MI5 say, you give us a billion, you don't need to spend it in Afghanistan, we'll solve the problem here, because that's the sort of money that we could actually quite usefully do with. Michael? Uh, well, that would be um, a, a defensive approach to terrorism, and British policy, certainly since 2001, and a new chapter to the Strategic Defence Review, was about taking the problem to its roots. That's eight years ago. It's a long time ago. Yes, I'm not. I'm not saying that that's the right approach. Um, uh, I think the argument would be in favour of having a multi-layered approach, which means both back at home and away. Which means MI5 does need money. Uh, the issue of what we do overseas, uh, as I've already indicated, relates to much bigger issues or longer-standing issues of um, our international status and reputation and where the nation sees itself. And it's a question of we wouldn't start from here, isn't it? Uh, yeah. If we had it all over again. I you don't think we, we, would we, gone, here, we would have gone to Afghanistan because of the Americans. Possibly, said, Please, but, might, come? possibly but a whole lot of other things might have, might have been done differently. And we're now stuck with it. And, uh, and I totally agree with Michael that just pulling out would send all the wrong signals and might encourage people to think these guys are are, are a pushover. Now, that's all very emotional stuff and very difficult to prove. But I absolutely agree with with, with what Michael's saying, is that just to say we've got to be in Afghanistan because it's keeping the the streets of Britain safe is oversimplistic. 
But yeah. the but the billion that MI five is asking for is not just protecting from terrorism on the ter- British territory. It is also creating the network of agents on the ground over there, which 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 nobody still has done. After 9-11, remember how many words were spoken about that? Yeah. And they said, we have to go back to the basics because satellites and all that other stuff doesn't really pick up, you know, information. So where's the network? The yeah. network is not operating. I mean, you all read your FT this morning. No, you didn't. Yeah. No, the jobs <laughs> column. I tell you what, the jobs <laughs> column in the FT this morning, which I scan religiously every day, um, MI6 is advertising. In, uh, I, I, I saw along with a, fin- a financial director of some northern company that were offering quarter of a million plus bonuses. Um, MPs need not apply. It said um, MI6 today. And this is the first one. I want to read this to you. And they're looking for another billion. Where else? <clears throat> where else could you learn the local dialect? Sip tea with a tribal elder and hear warnings of a regional uprising. Well, exactly, that's exactly, like, exactly what, what I about. said, yes, because yeah. that's what they need to do. Yeah. Of course, the, the KGB people are probably reading that and salivating and thinking we should send in Ivan posing as somebody. Yeah. They'll, <laughs> be, for it. they'll be lining up volunteering. <laughs> but in the good old days, the KGB worked for MI6 anyway. Isn't, um, isn't I mean, enough of this frivolity? Uh, yesterday, here in London, the counter-extremism uh, think tank, Quilliam, held a conference to bring together ideas on how to fight extremism in Pakistan. Well, on the line uh, is Fatima Mullik, the Pakistan project manager for Quilliam. I mean, is there a... It's not a simple plan, is there, Fatima? How do we fight extremism in Pakistan? Somebody can't just get up and say, well, this is how we do it. Well, no, not really. Um, as we all know, the Pakistan army has now launched a full-scale offensive in South Waziristan, and, uh, you know, it's that's known as the stronghold of militancy in the region. But what we understand and what is important to remember is that, uh, you know, just a military response is never enough. You know, it's merely a stopgap because uh, there is something that fuels extremism. And there are two things that we say at Quilliam, at least. Um, there are two things that you have to remember in, in, in sort of tackling this kind of a problem. One are the grievances, which uh, stem from either real or perceived social, economic or political injustices. And the other is ideology, um, which promotes a very specific view of the world. And um, in order to tackle a problem like this, uh, you know, there must be a greater um, focus towards economic, political and social reform and also a greater challenge to the extremist narrative that is used to fuel such uh, militancy. Is it a different battle to fighting extremism elsewhere, fighting it in Pakistan? Well, as I said, uh, you know, extremism is a result of the combination of grievances and of ideology, um, and this is pretty much the same everywhere. However, what makes it more complicated uh, in Pakistan's uh, case is the fact that it is a vast country. It has a very complex uh, and very diverse economic, social and political landscape uh, that needs to be understood, recognized and accounted for when formulating policy within the region. I mean, the provinces, uh, you know, the four provinces of Pakistan are extremely different in their historical and social and political trajectories. And recognizing these differences, um, you know, is, is, is crucial. 
uh, when working within Pakistan or formulating policy uh, for the region. But it has to it has to extend into the United Kingdom, doesn't it? I was I was looking at some figures and it said of um, this showed more or less that nineteen one nine out of the eighty seven individuals convicted of terrorism offences in Britain had family ties in Pakistan. Yes, I mean it is a well known and well documented fact that uh, there are. Uh, you know, very vast and significant links between Pakistan and Britain. And uh, what, you know, what is important to remember over here that the traffic is actually a, a two-way traffic. Uh, you know, the, a case in point is, of course, the director of, of Quilliam, which is a think tank uh, that I'm associated with, Majid Nawaz, who, when he was a member of the Islamist organization Hizbut Tahrir, actually flew from Britain to Pakistan uh, to start up the first cells of Hizbut Tahrir uh, in Pakistan in 1999. And, uh, you know, this, this, this trend continues even today. And so in order to launch an effective uh, sort of response to this trend, it is important for the governments of both Britain and Pakistan to have greater cooperation in information sharing, in security measures, and also crucially, as I said before, to tackle the ideology that fuels, um, you know, this, this militancy both in Britain and in Pakistan. Is it too simplified or simple to say that the battle... The war is not against terrorism, but against poverty. I think it is. Uh, I think it is too simple to say that because, uh, again, I'm going to go back to my earlier point. Uh, this is not to dismiss the fact that there are uh, very real and very legitimate grievances uh, that people feel, and poverty is one of them. But uh, not all poor people become extremists. And so what, you know, there, there, there is a potent mixture of a local grievance uh, combined with an ideology that then, you know, kind of frames a response to such a grievance, which which we then see, you know, uh, results in acts of uh, violence. Fatima, Fatima Mulek, thank you very much for joining us. Um, next door, Julian, in um, in Afghanistan, everybody's talking about the runoff uh, between uh, Messrs. Karzai and Abdullah. Abdullah, um, one report from Hellman says that British forces are pretty fed up with the thought of this runoff because last time a lot of blood was shed. Does that make sense to you? It certainly makes sense to me. They'll, they'll, they'll do what they're told, of course, and they'll do it to the best of their ability, but I imagine they're feeling, oh, no, not again, would be what I was feeling if I was sitting out there, yeah. and quite rightly, too. Yes. Michael, there's, there's another side of this, isn't there, and that is that um, if, you, if you look at the figures as far as we can actually get at them, in Helmand, there are not that many people who voted anyway. During the last election, yes, the, num the numbers uh, were very low, uh, indeed. 150, just yeah. to remind you. Yes, but over, over the commitment of the British uh, forces, uh, we did have Panther's Claw before the election last time, a specific operation which was related to the election to, to um, enable voting um, clearly not as effective as it was intended to be, but that was a reason for the high level of casualties. Now, as yet we don't know, nor should we, uh, whether there's going to be any similar type of operation mm. before the runoff. Um, uh, uh, I, I personally think that this second round is, is a reflection of America's indecision, because I would never buy this scenario when, when the Americans would say, well, we, we noticed that the first round was not very well performed, and that's why we can't really formulate our policy. We can't decide whether we're sending in more troops or not. 
And that, that is a tactic of delay. Obama doesn't know what to do. His generals are pushing, but there is also other, other factors involved. And I think that is the main reason. And this second round will not produce anything. I, 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 nobody is prepar- uh, waiting for well, any surprises. totally agree with Alexander. The other thing about this delay is that there's nothing worse for Moron being told, oh, a big plan's going to be produced any minute now. And it goes, oh, no, what is the big plan? Yeah, in the meantime, uh, yeah, turn two. Yes, turn exactly. two, yeah. yeah. Listen, but, there's another side of this, isn't there? Um, and that is that uh, the dither that people talk about is not necessarily dither. It's interesting, the, the, the concept that um, President Obama has asked uh, his people to look at each province in Afghanistan to see who controls those provinces and to see how you can best get, not democracy as we keep talking about, but the place governed in a, in a way which the local people will want to. In other words, Michael, getting back to the idea of uh, provincial government is the key to Afghanistan rather than some guy sitting on, on a throne in Kabul. Well, uh, clearly some model would be uh, a federal government of some sort where there is um, a, a more distinct uh, local um, uh, feature of each particular province and mm. areas within provinces. And that's one of the, not solutions, but one of the ways ahead that is being proposed. I suppose what I'm getting at is that, I mean, as far as I can remember or, or work out, Obama is the first president to say to all his generals, etc., OK, well, I hear what you're saying, but I am going to decide the strategy. I've got to decide where we go from here. Now, the last person, I think, to do that was probably 1961. It was probably uh, Jack Kennedy. Um, now, that is quite something. That, that is, uh, but that didn't work out well, did it? I mean, his, his decision. <laughs> no, no, but the point is he's actually working out the... Mm. Well, you see, in Afghanistan, I think the problem was, and I think we mentioned it uh, on this program many times before, at least I mentioned it, somebody has to talk to the warlords. Somebody has to be behind the scenes talking to them and trying to work out something. I think you you actually, Christopher, you, you, you pointed to this main idea that the central government doesn't work. In Afghanistan, so you have to talk to the regional mm. warlords and uh, drug dealers. Unfortunately, well, it's certainly true that I mean, I suspect if most people, I'm not sure this is this is going off the track a bit, but I suspect that most people who wouldn't bother to vote for Abdullah Abdullah or or to Mr. Karzai, if old General Masood was still alive, and that was a warlord par excellence, uh, if he was still alive, they probably vote for him straight away. Because he, he was, was a warlord politician, you see, he, yeah, but he combined wasn't, he, Yeah, but he wasn't a Pashtun, which you, you think... Well, it might have happened, actually. Okay. The... Has anyone done a military assessment, though, Julian, uh, of the delay the White House has created uh, by taking its time to fix a new strategy? I mean, it, you, you were sort of suggesting that the guys are still going to get up there first thing in the morning and the, or whatever it is and, and go out and do the business. Uh, how long can you go do that? Well, I, I think it's really at two levels. One is, as you put your finger in, that the people will go on doing their own business. And quite frankly, when you're on the ground, you're not worried, too worried about what's happening in the White House. Uh, you're, you're worried about, are you going to be alive when you come back from patrol tomorrow? Mm. Uh, are you going to get blown up in a mine? That's what really you know, exercises your mind. I believe that the difficulty is probably more at 
brigade and above level because they've got to shape their, the way they deal with things to this policy, whatever it is. And the trouble is, the more people chatter about it, the more difficult it becomes because they're waiting for the great message to come down from heaven, telling them what they're meant to be doing. Do you doing. see what... I mean, last Friday, I think it was, in... Um, in um, where was it? It was in uh, Slovakia, uh, Bratislava. NATO defence ministers meeting, right? And along goes uh, General Stanley McChrystal and says, this is what I've told the president. And all the... Um, Michael, all the um, uh, NATO defence ministers signed up for that including the American Defence Minister, Defence Secretary, Secretary Gates. Now, if all those def uh, NATO Defence Ministers, European ones, have signed up and said, yeah, Ms. Uh, uh, General, you've, you've got a good idea here, why are they not actually speaking or trying to second-guess Obama? It sounds to me that we've got two different camps here. Well, what you have in what um, Crystal has proposed is you have um, a, um, a, a military strategy which he has proposed to his president, which needs to be set in the wider context of um, a grand strategy for Afghanistan. I mean, he's talked about the short war and the long war, the refocusing on people, um, uh, and the fact that he has published this and he's been... Um, cleared to present this to NATO ministers means that this is certainly going to be the substance of what... Something, excuse me, I interrupt you. He hasn't been cleared by the Vice President, Joe Biden, right. who thinks he's talking a lot of rubbish, doesn't he? And he's made it very clear to the Vice President that the Vice President's talking a lot of rubbish. This seems a very, very forceful general. It, it, certainly, and, and you do have a feature here we don't see quite so often in this country, and that is of, of the American... Since Ameri General Dunnett went, yeah. you mean? Gone. Well, <laughs> <laughs> enough of that. So well, he's the, your um, chairman, isn't he, now? He was. Uh, yes. He, um, he um, resigned uh, shortly after taking up the post. Yes. yes. Uh, you do have this American warlord culture, uh, which uh, we're not particularly used to in this country, of course. Of, um, but if Obama says no to troops... McChrystal well, and he won't Gates. Say it to all the troops. No, 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 but they have to resign then. I mean, that's the big Technically question. Technically speaking, they have to resign. If, well, if, if General McChrystal Yes. No, no, and, and Gates, in a sense, because they supported this proposal. They stepped out of line, by the way, because you can't do this. The, the, the commander-in-chief is in Washington. So if they go to Brussels, they can talk quietly, privately. But McChrystal went on a public relations exercise... He went, came to London. He said, this is how I feel it should be done. But the double I, double S was not. The, I mean, in, in military terms, they betrayed the, the commander-in-chief. You can't do this. They, they put pressure on him publicly. So he's now basically obliged to accept what they're uh, demanding. Um, you could look at it slightly differently. First of all, his wording in, his, in the leaked documents is quite skillful in this respect. About uh, the, He talks about um, the troop surge not being the solution, etc. But you would also see this as compliance between him and the White House um, in relation to Congress and the American people. You've yeah, got that to be... Listen, listen, Michael. In, I, mean, I read what he said in, uh, in, in uh, Bratislava. There was no compromise in that. He wasn't trying to right. side sidestep it. He said, this is what we're going to have. And in and, London, the same. Yeah, and it all was the, very tough. And, but yeah. all the defence ministers, including our own, said, yeah, we'll buy into that, Stan. That That's good stuff. That doesn't compromise what I said there about... It doesn't mean that he uh, hadn't got the broader sense of the president in doing this. No, no. Um, um, I mean, I want to, can we shift? Um, I'll come back to maybe come back to this later on. Um, but I want to shift now to Iraq because more bombing in Iraq. Um, I mean, it's the biggest attack in a couple of years, I think. On the line, the security editor of Open Democracy Net, Daniel Joseph MacArthur Seal. I mean, 
who is doing the bombing in Iraq? Have we actually known why they're doing it and how they're doing it? Okay, well, the most recent bombings have been claimed um, by the Islamic State of Iraq, which is, in effect, an umbrella organization that includes um, al-Qaeda, the al-Qaeda leadership. Um, the reason they're doing it, it seems, is to destabilize the country and to reignite the sectarian violence that um, was so prominent in 2006 and before. Have you got an idea? I mean, these are the people that did that bombing in, I think, in August, didn't they, as well? There was another one of the truck bombings in, in yeah, August. Yeah, they claimed responsibility for that at the same time as they claimed responsibility for the recent attacks. Yeah. And they were particularly similar attacks on, on the same ministries um, and using the same tactics of car bombings. When they talk about being affiliated, have you got a sort of grip of, uh, of what this affiliation means? They just do it in the name of Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda, whatever Al-Qaeda is, just sort of nonsense, it's, it's OK. Well, as far as we know, the structure of the organisation is basically it's a, um, a coalition of Sunni groups, including Al-Qaeda, um, who are all intent of, on um, creating a, a caliphate in Iraq, as a separate Sunni a religious state. And so they're all, all united by their, by their common goal. And that is all, though. I mean, they haven't, they, they're uniting their common goal, but they haven't got some political uh, instinct behind them, as, as we've seen before in the difference between the Sunni and the, and the Shiite groups. Well, they have actually, uh, they recently, um, a couple of years ago, create, um, created a, what they said was provisional government. And they are, in a way, marketing themselves as an alternative state, the Shia-dominated government that's at present in Baghdad. Hence the title. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, here's here's what you might think, I suppose. Um, that is that if this continues, then Iraq is in a worse state than it was prior to two thousand and three. Well, I mean, it's a difficult factor to judge. It's certainly the security situation and the number of people dying on the streets is obviously worse. But whether that um, negates the opportunities that the Invasions provided in terms of um, participatory government and democracy is another question. Right. Daniel Joseph MacArthur Seal, thank you very much indeed. Um, it is a difficult one, isn't it, Julian? The people who look at, say, general public, look at Iraq and say, they're still blowing each other up. Uh, so what did we actually achieve? This psyche then sort of is aimed at government policy or whoever makes the policy and then it, it bounces on to Afghanistan where you actually need that enormous support at the moment and that can damage that support Yes, I, I mean I personally feel or believe the country is worse off in fact uh, and, and Saddam was not a nice guy, in fact he was a pretty unpleasant guy but I think there was probably more personal liberty in Iraq then particularly for women uh, in pre-2003 than there is now actually is that a, is that a, a, something you'd you'd endorse, Michael Codner? Uh, broadly, I, mean, I think we have to look at where we are now, though, and and where Iraq is going now. And my, my response to this would be that this is a single event. It's our duty as analysts to put this in the wider context. Now, it may be that the situation is beginning to deteriorate again, but what we're looking at is a cumulative process. If there is now a series of 
um, attacks such as this, which build up, etc., and it does look as though things are getting worse, then yes, but one particular event, um, as I say, is not one of a sequence necessarily. But there have been events like this every week, sure. or not on this it's, scale. It's, it's sadly a matter of, of statistics and um, in, in the wider scheme of things before we start saying it's doomed. Now, as far as uh, the... Uh, how this is handled by the media and supports internationally within Iraq, etc. That's, of course, another matter. But as I say it's our duty to put these things into context. But it was anticipated that it would yeah. happen because once the Americans announced their schedule of withdrawal, it was obvious that the insurgents will start bombing to show that they are winning, mm. that they are pushing the Americans out. It's our victory, they're saying, that they're running, they're not withdrawing. And that was basically anticipated. This particular uh, incident will will repeat itself simply because the elections are approaching. It's obvious. It's the same problem. Yes, but it's a crucial uh, election. uh, And and, and I think this will repeat. Just, um, Alexander, just take very briefly, if you would, the idea that when people look at it cynically and say, ha, they were better off than before, does that bounce onto Afghanistan and therefore cause lack of public opinion for what's going on in Afghanistan? Of course, it does. That's the point, because uh, the uh, Americans, uh, what they don't understand, they do their PR in the sense that they uh, say that, you, look, we, we came in and we went in and it's much better now and so on and so on, but they don't really show that it's actually getting worse. Okay. Um, Julian, uh, the Nimrod inquiry um, and the report published by uh, Mr. Haddon Cave. A couple of the RAF officers have been sent for staff jobs. So a complete cock-up and you get a staff job. Well, I, I think it's, it's unfair to, to, to put the, the, the finger in that sense. Um, personally, I, I believe that people should be marched off in, into the tumbrils of, of the ministers who cut the, cut the defence budget and at the same time committed us to two serious wars. It's all very well to say Oh, you know, wipe their hands and shed crocodile tears, and isn't it awful? And we'll have an inquiry, and blah blah blah. In fact, it's their problem. They started. They, they, it's their fault. But they, they're not instant experts. I mean, it must have been chiefs of staff, etc., and ministries, and British BAE, as it was then. Sure, they must have advised them. I, I know how some of these things work. What happens is, is people say this is the budget, and what will happen is they'll come to the logisticians or whoever's running this and say, we can probably make it work, but the risks are this, this and this. And you say, OK, we'll do it. Or do you then march off to ministers and say, well, sorry, we're going to ground all these aeroplanes and ground all this kit and there ain't going to be a show. This is a problem. And it all comes back to money. Mm. Michael? The particular issue in this case, and I think it's quite important, is uh, that the... uh, aircraft that were being used at the time uh, it was the replacement aircraft that wasn't available and that wasn't just a matter of money, that was because the programme itself had been a shambles the number of replacement had been a shambles. The issue over this particular um, um, incident, the significant one I think that comes out of the report was the way in which the um, the uh, studies that were done um, internally uh, beforehand over the suitability of the Nimrod for the longer term, quite apart from what money needed to be spent, how they were handled. They were handled um, casually because the presumption was this aircraft has been running for decades, it's a great aircraft and it's unlikely to have any problems. What happens is um, that you have a confluence of 
things going badly wrong and um, a major problem which could have been identified. That's the point of the report. The money issue is not certainly one of the current money crisis. It's one of lack of money allocated at the SDR time, at the Strategic Defence Review time in 1998. And also, of course, the rush commitment for more forces in Afghanistan because of uh, our re-entry in 19... In 2006, uh, somewhat unexpected re-entry, um, which was, uh, these are all reasons for the problem. It's not quite the same as some of the fun- funding problems just at the moment. No, I'm not suggesting it is yeah. the same as the funding problems now, but it does go back, as Michael says, to, to SDR. You, you come up with SDR and then you underfund it. Yeah. And then suddenly you're, you're, you find yourself in two wars which you hadn't planned for. You've got to find more money to fight yeah. those wars. Julian, I mean, just, oh, oh Michael, just, um, we're running late, so just a quick one on this. Did I read in the report, or did I hear Bob Ainsworth, the Defence Secretary, say um, that we wouldn't be refuelling those aircraft? They wouldn't have a refuelling capability anymore. And I was trying to figure out, well, how do they get places for a long time? Well, the answer is they don't. And those aircraft never had a refuelling capability until the Falklands, funnily enough, and then they put a lash-up in it in order to allow them to fly south. And I suspect... As they did with the C-130s. Yeah, and I suspect, Michael will correct me if I'm wrong, that that lash-up was part of the problem. Yes, it, it certainly was. Um, it, it's not as critical as it was in the Falklands, where you had to base the aircraft um, thousands of miles away. Um, they could, Nimrods can be in the air a long time. That's what they were for in the North Atlantic. They had to be around for, for hours, not minutes. And... Um, and um, uh, and uh, so they can still operate in Afghanistan. They just don't do that stuff. Yeah. I wonder if de Havilland knew what they were doing when they built the Comet, because that was the basic airframe, isn't oh, it, that we're oh. actually seeing now? Mm. Hey, yeah, listen, it's um, a remarkable aircraft, I have to is. say. Yeah. I mean, when you look at what it's been used for and how long it's been going, I mean, there, it's, it's... It was the first a, jet to replace the super constellations and the old mm. turboprops. Listen, we're extremely late. We apologise for that. Um, anything you missed or want to hear again, there's been plenty so far, just go into bfbs.com forward slash sitrep and you can listen again and podcast the whole of sitrep. So stay tuned. Okay, and now it's time for sitrep overheard, that part of the sitrep week when we take a sometimes sideways look at not necessarily defence and global affairs, but some of the issues that bounce off the big issues that do or will concern British forces throughout the world afloat on land or airborne. With me in the studio, the Director of the Military Sciences Programme at the RUSI, Michael Codner, former Kremlin troubleshooter, um, Alexander Nekrasov, and Royal Marine Major General and Military Historian Julian Thompson. I want to talk about big powers, maybe sometimes with small minds. I mean, thinking about news, say, from North Korea and Iran, uh, from Afghanistan and Pakistan, I, it makes me wonder how powers like the United States and major European states, including the UK, Julian, cope with a potentially dangerous small power. Um, it seems to me they don't understand the ambitions of those leaders and the people. No, they don't. Uh, and uh, as a result, of course, they irritate them by lecturing them about this, that and the other, which doesn't help. Uh, and I think the, the, a better way is to understand the pressures that are on them. And, and uh, it's difficult in some ways to think of what pressure North Korea m- might be under. It's probably self-generated, but one can certainly see the pressure that Iran is under uh, internally, where they've got a, a dissident population that wants some sort of reform, you have a, a, a group of guys at the top who have to be seen to be tough and have to you know, present this tough image to their people, and uh, we have to understand that. 
Uh, look at the, at Iran, this latest uh, problem with their agreeing to the... Uh, which to they've the, done today. To the, yes, which, which they've done today. And the way it was handled by the Americans and the, and, and, and the Europeans was not at all correct. First of all, why the threats? You know, how can you talk to a country well, like maybe Iran? Maybe the threats have done the business. No, it, no, what I'm saying here is this. Why was, what was the point of pressing Iran and saying, if you don't respond today... By, by 12 o'clock midnight, you know, on Friday. You no know, consequences are unpredictable and so on. First of all, even when Iran says yes to these conditions, it, it doesn't stop the nuclear program. <laughs> it doesn't. It will continue. Okay, there are certain obstacles. Well, the idea created. at the moment is process uranium can go out of the country and yeah, come but, back but clean, it doesn't, clean. It doesn't stuff. put an end to the nuclear program. So the, 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 the point I'm making is this. There are the domestic audience in Iran... There is no understanding of how it works with the Iranian leadership. They, they need to show their people that they are, you know, tough, that, that they stand up for the national interests of Iran and so on. So pressuring them at that time didn't, didn't produce anything. It, it, it was actually not beneficial to the whole process at all. And I think that it's time to change those things. First of all, the ambassadors on the ground are not doing a good job. Let's face it. Or they're not listened to. Well, I think they're not doing a good job because they should inform about those subtleties that Julian mentioned about. They're very important ones, you know, for the government to understand. So maybe the ambassadors should tell occasionally, look, but this you, is not the best way know, to do I it. You I go in and out of the uh, foreign office, so once a week, and you hear guys saying, it's absolutely crazy. You know, we, they still talk about cables. Um, we've got people on the ground who say it's not like this. Exactly. That's just walk. They walk. They're walked over by uh, ministers who have to think in terms of relations with the United States, uh, with in terms of relations I, I, with the I, EU. I, I wouldn't agree with that because you know I've dealt with diplomats a lot, and and some of the stuff they write for the government, I mean, it's just plainly boring. You know, it, it, it's not the way to present it. So if you want the, your minister to, to to sort of pay attention, it's not more than two, three pages. You do not write like they write, you know, 50 pages or 150 like pages. 50 pages. Oh, they do. Come on, I know them. They, they do. still they write do. in cableese. Uh, no, I mean, Almost. the big reports come in, in, in long, sort of many pages. Really. And, and the point is this. You have to deliver this, you know, your, your opinion or its analysis in a very brief form. Michael is exaggerating. Well, I think there are diplomats and diplomats. We can be talking about American diplomats, Russian diplomats, British diplomats. They, the, They're um, all the same. Well, you say that, but uh, there's certainly big differences between the way the State Department operates vis-à-vis -vis the White House and the way um, British Foreign Office uh, operates. With but the they, over, they operate the Foreign Office or Foreign Secretary mm. and, the, and Downing Street operates over the heads of the ambassadors quite well, often. Well, one of the problems that some ambassadors have, and I haven't seen diplomatic cables for a very long time since I used to work for the Chiefs of Staff years ago, but one of the things the Foreign Office has is a great suspicion of diplomats who are, in their own words, have gone native, yes, have become too <laughs> sort of, you know, pro the, the place they're well, the in. the Foreign Office are supposed and, to be and, full of camels, isn't it? Well, yeah, you know, so, they, so there is this, this problem that if a guy is saying, hey, Foreign Office, don't do it this way because actually you're just ir you know, you're irritating the locals, they can be accused of taking the side of the locals against Very the Foreign Office. Very good example of that, I think, 82, 1982, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. where the guy in Buenos Aires said to the Foreign Office, look, don't stir the trouble here because you'll upset diplomatic relations with Argentina. And there they were, 
winding up to go supposedly on exercise with with the Uruguayan Navy. Yeah. And in fact, we're going to invade. So it, perhaps the Foreign Office sometimes uh, listens too carefully to the ambassadors. Well, maybe. Um, but but that is one of the problems that if they get the one that is too, a report that is too favourable, they will regard them as having been turned. <laughs> Can I just move this on to something else, which um, I, I suppose at every level we have to sort of think our, uh, ourselves through to something more basic. Um, next Monday, that's the 2nd of November, the Home Secretary, Alan Johnson, is speaking at the Royal Society of Arts on the role of the state in protecting the public. Now, that sounds a pretty straightforward pos- uh, proposition, doesn't it? But it isn't, is it, Michael? There's far more to it. It certainly isn't. I have to say that my director is responding to his, <laughs> to his um, speech. Um, it, it certainly isn't, and that's uh, uh, partly because in the British case in particular, there is the big issue of what should the state be doing to protect its people and institutions, uh, um, the um, infrastructure, etc., and what lies outside the state's jurisdiction, what belongs to the private sector. And in this country... Uh, we haven't really, I think, answered that question in a way where government is clearly authoritative and taking um, uh, full responsibility for what its its, um, primary and basic purpose is in that respect. But there's part of this, isn't there, uh, Julian? There is the basic argument that is there a choice between liberty and security? Or is it something that we've, we, it's changing? We've simply got to get used to the fact we have less liberty if we want more security to give us a certain amount of liberty. Yes, I, it's, it's a terribly difficult balance to strike uh, because you can uh, feel totally not at liberty because you're frightened, you're terrified of being attacked by terrorists, so your liberty is being infringed in that way, your liberty to walk about, go to a theatre, go to the restaurants, that sort of thing. At the same time, you don't want to feel that all the time people are coming up to you and you know, patting you down and looking, where's your ID card, where are you going, and all that sort of thing. It's a terribly difficult balance to strike. And at times you have to um, restrict people's liberty in order to get uh, security, like, for example, if in Belfast or in the height of the IRA troubles where people going to shopping centres had to be searched, because otherwise they, they wouldn't go there because they might be blown up. So how you strike the balance is a very, very tricky thing to achieve. But there's a new dimension to this subject now, because in the past, if you made mistakes outside in your foreign policy, you did not pay for them with your security on your soil. Now you do. So that means the government has to think twice before it does anything outside the country and see how it can <clears throat> impact on, on its own country. I think it's a completely new situation. Well, it's not new for this country. No. We live with those problems for, in connection with Ireland, which was had an international dimension to it, relating to the United States, Libya and elsewhere. Yeah, but, but Northern Ireland was part of the United yeah. Kingdom. Yeah, but it it's wasn't a, a new different. problem. Because it's a bit different. It wasn't yeah. a new problem, because all the time you were, you were, the government had to say, you know, if we do this, will it get the Irish up in arms? Will we be bombing our, our But you see, the, I mean, bringing it down to... Um, or, or what, you, you can bring it down to a local level. I, mean, I lived in, a, in an area uh, that had more punks than the whole of the 1970s rock scene. I mean, it really was bad. And so they started putting cameras in. I objected to the cameras because I said people are looking at me. So the next thing we have is an explosion in London and the security people and the police go immediately go to those cameras because those cameras will tell them, or they hope to be told, 
how did this thing start in the first place? Now, that seems OK if it stops the explosions happening in the first place. But there's still an unease, isn't there, Michael, that, you know, why are we being looked at like this? And, yes, indeed, and because there is the possibility that uh, these systems could be exploited and, and be taken beyond what their uh, purpose, original purpose of specific security could be. And what you need, therefore, is to have democratic process, which will modify this. You ask for, um, for imprisonment to be allowed for so many days, there's then a negotiation in Parliament. The issue is really whether your democratic process and your system of government, and talking about this country particularly, is good enough to get the right balance. And that depends on the quality of your parliament and the relationship with the executive as well as everything else. And I think there's a big question there but, over where we are in that respect. But we also go, if we map, you're talking about Northern Ireland, Julian, if we go back there and the introduction of Diplock courts, mm. where you didn't have juries. Now, for the first time, the general public started to voice an unease that the jury system was something which they felt was extraordinary. They should not be taken away from any court procedure. Yeah, and I can understand why people felt like that, but I also realise why the Diplock system was put in, because no jury would ever convict anybody, because they knew jolly well that the next day the guy would be around giving what was used in the old days called a head job to all their, to all their relatives, or even to them. And so you have to have emergency measures to deal with emergency times. And I, I, I personally think the Diplock system worked and, and was, was, was justified. Can I, can I just move on um, to another aspect of that balance between liberty and security? Last week, the House of Lords defeated a government proposal for some inquest to be held in secret. But the government is going to put it through the Commons anyway, or try to, in the Coroners and Justice Bill. On the line, the legal commentator Joshua Rosenberg Joshua, this would give the Lord Chancellor the absolute discretion, would it not, to order a secret inquiry rather than a public inquest? That's absolutely right. Uh, he would use it, he promises, in uh, only a small number of cases. And the reason for this is the problem over disclosure of sensitive material, and that tends to mean uh, information uh, from interception of communications, tapping of phones and so on. Um, and the uh, authorities take the view that this sort of material must not be disclosed to a jury, uh, and obviously if it's produced at an inquest, the jury would come across it, and for that reason uh, they are pressing ahead with their original plans to... Uh, keep this information secret from the jury and the public, uh, not through uh, a secret inquest, but by moving the whole thing from an inquest to a public inquiry, uh, which under the current law can be held in very restricted circumstances. Just a point, uh, uh, the phone tapping intercepts, are they admissible as evidence? They're not. And there's been a long campaign by lawyers to say that they should be admitted um, in evidence. The problem, of course, is that the uh, security services take the view that if the public were to know what capacities, what capabilities uh, the authorities have, then that would limit the effect of these particular techniques. In other words, if you knew how it was done and what they could do and what they couldn't do, then you wouldn't have calls uh, that were vulnerable to interception and that would damage the intelligence that can be obtained in this way. Joe, I wonder if, if we could actually get to a point where relatives, for example, of deceased could 
be banned from such a hearing? I think we could, because these uh, inquiries that the government wants to set up um, uh, under the current law, uh, passed about four years ago, can be held in very, very restricted circumstances. They were actually designed for one or two public inquiries arising from events in Northern Ireland when uh, it was thought that uh, the authorities had colluded uh, with loyalist terrorists and uh, it was important to have inquiries into deaths uh, but it was important also that the public shouldn't know too much uh, about the, the, the background. Um, so there are very strict powers to exclude uh, relatives, the, the public and so on. Uh, and the government says that uh, it would be wrong to have uh, this information uh, before a jury. It would be wrong to have a jury that was not given the necessary information. So therefore we'll have a High Court judge to conduct an inquiry and the government promises that it would deal with all the issues that an inquest would uh, consider who the deceased was and how he died and so on. I wonder if there's a nervousness that uh, this might be also a way of the authorities to avoid proper scrutiny of their behaviour and decisions. Well, you can see why people are saying that. Um, the, point, the point about all these proposals is that the, um, the subtitle is trust the government, trust us to, to do it right, trust us not to use these powers except in very exceptional circumstances where the public interest is at stake. And if you trust a future government to uh, respect that principle that uh, inquests and inquiries should be as open as possible, then that's fine. If you fear that once you give ministers powers, they will use them in circumstances that may merely be embarrassing, uh, then you would have concerns about this particular proposal. Joshua, final point. Um, the report on Nimrod uh, published yesterday and the criticism of the government by the coroner, Andrew Walker, would that sort of openness be fulfilled still by the clause in this bill? That was an extraordinarily open inquiry uh, in the sense not that, that it was held in public but that the, uh, the QC who uh, conducted it, Charles Haddon Cave, uh, named names and was utterly frank in a way that I don't think we've often seen before. But this wasn't an inquest uh, and uh, it didn't actually obviously disclose any uh, confidential, any classified information. Uh, if Charles Haddon Cave was uh, conducting uh, one of these inquiries that the government wants, um, then I think people would be quite reassured. On the other hand, I somehow don't think he's going to be asked to. <laughs> Joshua Rosenberg, thank you very much for joining us. Um, special envoys. Everybody's got a special envoy uh, or... And, uh, in fact, one of them wants to be president of Europe, apparently. Um, we spend a lot of time appointing special envoys, don't we? Um, I was struck this week that we still have a Middle East crisis between Palestinians and Israelis in spite of two special envoys, Messrs Blair and Senator Mitchell. Career's not done in spite of the Tufts University academic Stephen Bosworth. Afghanistan is not done in spite of the... No nonsense talents of uh, Dick Holbrook from Washington. As for Cyprus, how many envoys have haven't solved that divide? <laughs> Alexandra, <laughs> I mean, you were in the business of envoys <laughs> and appointing them and, and, and where they should go, yes. etc. They're well, a waste of time, aren't they? Well, it's a sort of a sexy title, you know. And uh, basically what it does is that you have another uh, strand of the foreign office uh, introduced that uh, you basically you, you say okay the ambassador on the ground and the, the, the diplomats there okay they're doing their job but we need somebody on top somebody more senior to come in 
and oversee that. And um, what we have found out in, uh, in, in Russia is that they don't work. Special envoys. Why don't they work? Well, because there's a contradiction here. Because when they come to the country, for example, if they're sent abroad somewhere, the diplomats, they are reluctant to help them. Because basically they see them as somebody coming in and infringing on their territory. And so, technically speaking, what is the status of a special envoy? What does he do? Pretty arrogant, isn't it, to send a special <laughs> envoy into another country to it's, sort it's it out, sort Julian? Of, it, well, it's a sort of panacea, isn't it? It's a bromide. It's, it's like, you know, drug czars and things like that. It's just, <laughs> it is just, I mean, to use a very word, rude word, it's bullshit. Is that rude? No, no. I mean, it is. <laughs> I mean, it is. It, I totally agree with Alexander. And it, it, I, putting an extra layer, also, the serious point is it must increase the problem of briefing the guy, because you're going to have to put in new briefers, you're going to have to increase the briefing staff, the, the overload on the department to which that special envoy you know, is being briefed by the Middle East Department or the Russian Department or whatever it is, is hugely increased by suddenly having this guy parachuted in, who they've suddenly got to brief and bring up to speed, where actually he may know nothing about the subject at all. Interesting. Northern Ireland, Senator Mitchell, is credited with actually bringing people together at a time when they just needed the extra shove. Is that right, Michael? Well, there certainly are some good examples, and that's one of them. Uh, and also the um, Canadian general who was brought in at a particular stage in Northern Ireland. You've got the example of Bosnia, of Holbrook, wasn't it? Who, uh, but there you've got the situation of reluctance to America to be engaged, and then a presidential representative um, taking an initiative um, to lead America in. We're talking Bosnia here now. Um, and one must remember that in the American system, you've got the ambassador, State Department, but the special envoy would be representing the White House directly. Uh, it's a bit different in the British case where you don't have that usually because we don't have a pre we're not meant to have a presidential form of okay, government. Well, but special envoys yeah. in the past, by the way, yeah. during the war and after the war immediately, these were secret missions. And that's the difference between the, the, the past and the present mm. because in the past, the special envoys, I actually acted as a special envoy in the 90s. Uh, I can't say why, but um, what subject? I could talk, but the point was that hate to think with you. <clears throat> you, you, you are doing it behind the scenes. You do not use the resource of the foreign office or anybody else. You do it through your own contacts, and you try to. Uh, is that what you were doing? Yes, you try to understand what the situation on the ground is from a completely different perspective, and that brings a new, fresh look, which you can then pass over to the government and tell them, look, this is what is happening from my point of view and from the sources I have. That changed, and they became, you know, celebrities. Yeah. That's the problem. Yeah, and exactly. I mean, the, the kind that, that Alexander did was deniable. Nobody knew it was happening. If exactly. it all went wrong, it didn't matter because no one knew about it. Whereas if you have this sort of star who's launched, or he's going to sort it all out and no, 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 and then it doesn't work. You look pretty stupid. I think the uh, Irish case is, is interesting because the, the, the Americans had a particular buttons they could press, press with the Irish. And I think that was almost, if you like, an, an exception. By putting an American in there, somehow the Irish would listen to him where they might not listen to a Brit. Yeah, yeah. And, and the Americans... Um, uh, we had to have them on side because they had been part of the problem. And yeah, exactly. having uh, exactly. American, <laughs> America, a American leader's representative actually take but initiative was yeah. fundamentally you important. Then, you then get a contrast, don't you, and even a, a, and um, even a conflict. Now, Lord Carrington, 
was a special envoy in Yugoslavia, the former Yugoslavia, yes? And he lasted a year, and the Americans wanted their own scheme, and so they brought in Cy Vance, Cyrus Vance, with, I think, Dr. David Owen, as he then he was. Um, and when, I think, Carrington had almost got an agreement, and then they said, no, 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 we're doing this. And so the special envoy is actually fighting the people that are supposed to be his partners. Exactly. That's exactly the problem, because they were, as I said, celebrities in their way, and that doesn't work anymore. And if they go back to the old scheme, it might actually start working. Yeah. I just, uh, finally, um, talking about celebrities, a, a very odd thing a couple of days ago. Um, I was sitting, as I sometimes do, I was sitting in a bar in New York, and someone I hadn't seen for years came in, put a drink on my tab, and then he said, did I know that Morrissey had collapsed on stage? And he knew because it was hot-breaking newsflash on BBC News website. Now, Alexander, this is on the day that 140 people are being killed in Iraq. Now, goodness knows how many in Pakistan, Afghanistan, etc. And Morrissey, I hope everybody knows who Morrissey is, you know, remember the Smiths, going back to the punks. Morrissey was hold the front page news. Is there something wrong here, uh, Alexander? Well, that's, again, the celeb culture. I mean, that, that's the problem. And um, I don't, I don't really think that too many people know about him. But uh, about I th- Morrissey. Yes, but the, the point was that on the internet it was quite a big thing, and now the internet drives a lot of news, and uh, I think that's what happened. Uh, I've, I've, I actually, I'll be honest with you, I have not heard a single good song by Morrissey. I'm sorry. Oh, you've but heard his songs, though, but not Well, not yes, but I, I, it was just sort of in passing. It was like in the d- d- dentist, uh, you know. Yeah, this uh, man's <laughs> a, refor- a, a reformed punk. I mean, there are something you said from it. But, the, I mean, the, the important thing, the guy that was talking to me, he said, listen, there were 2,000, and not all youngsters, 2,000 waving and stamping uh, in front of Morrissey well, when he sort of... Youngsters. What? It wouldn't be youngsters, would they? <laughs> well, no, but that, no, no, actually, 50s, no, that's yes. not true. Right. No, that's oh, not youngsters. true. A lot of youngsters. All right. And he was saying that, you know, they couldn't care, uh, whatever he put it, they couldn't care uh, really about what was happening in Kabul, in, in, in Baghdad. What they cared was what was happening on front of them, on, on, on stage. And it's coming back to what you were saying much earlier, uh, Julian, is that a lot of people say it was wrong, and therefore we're just going to get on with our own private lives, which Morrissey uh, could distinguish. But my point is, what was the BBC doing? I don't know the BBC ever. What was the BBC doing? Might have to work for them one day. What was the BBC doing? Putting Morrissey collapsing on stage at the top of the bulletin. News just in. I mean, doesn't that annoy you? Well, it's just a celeb thing. It does annoy me, yes, but there's probably nothing we can do about it. We've just got to live with it. Um, and this is putting the celebrity, the celebratocracy, if you like, above what uh, the real life. Mm. It has to do with news, too, to be honest with you. I think, personally, that news in the the last ten years or more, it is becoming a bit boring, isn't it? I mean, we have all those endless reports, you know, live. They say we're coming live from somewhere, and he stands outside some building, allegedly knowing what's happening. As I stand here. (laughs) Yes, and it's sort of this, uh, you know... There is no oomph to those rep- to this reporting anymore. Okay, I mean, the, you see, Michael. Yeah, it's, it's as you say, it's continuity rather than change. Something like this is a specific event. It also, as you've implied, 
speaks volumes for the fact that neither in the United States nor in this country are the population deeply involved in what's going on in Iraq and Afghanistan um, because there isn't a direct threat to them. If there was, it would be rather different. It doesn't mean it's not important, but it's not so important in terms of what comes first on the news. It's not a war of national survival. Exactly. Yeah, and that means that Morrissey will always rate, at least for an hour, top of the news bulletin. Absolutely. And that's because they've been reporting it day after day after day, perhaps in Afghanistan. Yeah. Somebody says in the newsroom, find me something else. Well, I suspect one of the reasons, and I agree with Alexander, why the news is so boring, is there's so much of it. It just goes on and on and on and on. It's no longer news. It's on, just a sort of tapestry on. that rolls and rolls. You're tapping into the bankroll here. Anyway, we're not going to go on and on and on. My thanks to Julian Thompson, to Alexander Nekrasov and to Michael Codner. Join us here on SITREP next Thursday at 4 o'clock UK time or you can listen again and podcast anytime you like at bf.com forward slash SITREP. Now from me, Christopher Lee, I'm going and Mary still in the hut. <laughs>